we're in a, the church calendar has me in a real conundrum. Um, under the conviction that it's not just that the stories are told, but it's also significant is the way they're told, right? So, so we're working on narrative stories, and we, we could cover a narrative story, but it's not just that there's the story there and that the story's being told, but the significant portion in understanding the text is how the stories are being told. So that necessarily makes me a person probably by personality even more than conviction, a person of detail. So then, then that really slows my role. And, and so I'm left, I thought going into studying this week, we were going to cover all of 23, just about, and that we'd be all set for two weeks away. Uh, Easter, we're actually going to be by Providence uh, and a little bit of conniving. We'll actually be at passage 24. Um, I'm still aiming for that. Um, but I found out that as I was figuring about 12 verses this week, I ended up with, I don't know, three or four or whatever it was. So I'm working on it. I'm going to try. But we'll just celebrate the resurrection through Luke 24 a week late if we have to. Um, we can't force the uh, liturgical calendar to just force our hand completely. We can't skip the details because the details are written for us to be mindful of. Again, it's not just that the stories are told. It is also significant how it is that they are being told. So, like this morning, you'll see there's characters being introduced who, who are not to be too much of character. Um, Jesus remains center stage. But that doesn't mean that the other parts to play are ancillary to the point you just skip over them in a big swath of passages. At least, that's my argument. But to the passage then this morning, as we aim at at least getting through what we have this morning, is to pick up with the women who are here in the text, who are the women of mourning. Now, in verse 26, just to rehearse, just briefly, not too long, but recall, hopefully you were able to go through small group studies this week and kind of look over the text once again about who Simon of Cyrene was, and to build a case based on inference from other passages in a web of ideas that lands on giving us a character portrait or a story of who was the man, Simon of Cyrene. And I'm going to make somewhat of a similar argument, but not as labored in verse 27 this morning, just briefly considering who are the women who are here in verse 27, who are mourning. I just want to, re, uh, to read verse 26 and 27, and then we'll pick up with our time this morning. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and they laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. So the scene is set. And verse 27, And there followed him a great multitude of people. And then, and then here's kind of where we pick up this morning, and of women. So there's a, a good number of women in a much larger multitude who were mourning and lamenting for him. Now, again, my argument would be for these women who are lamenting and mourning that it is very similar to the portrait that we're given in, in, in like manner of Simon of Cyrene. I, I, I would argue against the idea that they're professional mourners. 
And, and not that that wasn't to take place in that context, where some would come out and they would, they would wail or they would mourn and show public sorrow, in a sense, for these individuals who are being carried off to a gruesome death, and they're going to be crucified. And, and so there was some role of that. For me, I'd say it's not without the possibility, but, but, but the weight of it for me is that these women were particularly mourning and lamenting for him, not merely to be a present of public sorrow, but because they were women of belief. And that these ladies, these women who are mourning and lamenting over him, remember him, and they know him, and they have faith that rests upon him. And they see the whole kind of 360 degree of the tragedy that's taking place. Again, I would build that argument in similar fashion to the same way that we see evidence of the man Simon of Cyrene, even if it be by strong inference that these women are a part of a mixed multitude. Indeed, the largest of the multitude crying out for death and crucifixion, but a small subset but a strong set of believing people. That is the presence of the church of Christ as they mourn and lament the crucifixion. Of course, I feel a little bit more confident in the inferences I'm drawing because my man Calvin takes this same route also. So I would share with you from Calvin, he says, quote, although in public all the people with one shout, had condemned Christ. Yet we see that there were some who had not forgotten his doctrine. And they recall his miracles. And thus, in the midst of this miserable dispersion, right, there followed him a great multitude. So for Calvin, in the midst of this miserable dispersion, God reserved for himself a small remnant similar to Simon of Cyrene. And although the faith of those women indeed was weak in this hour, yet it is probable that there is hidden in them a sea of piety, which afterwards in due time produced its fruit. So the argument here is that there is a small mixed subset within a larger multitude who indeed is mourning and lamenting the death of our Lord. And then it is that our Lord then, in his response, as the crowds are screaming and crying out that they want him to be crucified and humiliated. And remember, the scene is so barbaric that he fell under the weight of a crossbeam. And then they said, hey, Simon, you got to carry it, because we have more in store for him. We don't have plans for him to die on the way. We want to be at, as the text says in a few moments, at the place of a skull, the place of public execution where the passers-by can gaze upon him. We can't let him die here. We need him to die up there. And it is in this brutality and this bloodlust context where there is a church who is mourning and lamenting for our Lord. But notice his response that he gives to them. And, and, and this is instructional for us and that it is a a reminder to the faithful of the coming destruction. And remember, not just of Jerusalem, but it has multiple reference. So from the prophecy here, his talk about Jerusalem is going to be heavy on 70 AD. 
right? 70 AD, this is going down. So, so it has multiple reference. So if, if you were to look at it, here's the prophecy that he's giving to them, and we'll look at the context of it in the comment just in a moment. And it goes kind of like this in your mind. It jumps here to 70 AD, but it has a multiple referent where it also extends beyond 70 AD, and it has an eschatological fulfillment. So the collapse is real, and it's in time, in history, in 70 AD. This is going to happen to you. Not like in an idea in the end, in the eschaton, when all things melt down, and we all know that's coming. Yes, but also to you who stand here today watching me be carried to Golgotha. You. It will happen to you. So in this idea of referent one, 70 AD, within, uh, what is that, within 40 years of the crucifixion, and then also in its eschatological fulfillment on a grander scale. That judgment awaits everyone who doesn't repent and receive Christ through faith. Notice then his comment to them who are there on that day. Verse 28. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, which is staggering, right? That he can speak. Remember what's going on here. He's been beaten so bad he can barely walk, and he can't carry a beam. And here these women, the church believers, mourn and lament for him. They're sobbing and crying out for the injustice that's falling upon the Lord in whom they trust. But turning to them, Jesus said to them, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming, right? Like, they're really coming. Forty years from For behold, the days are coming when they will say proverbially, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say collectively to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover over us. Now, It's noteworthy here as he speaks of this doom that is before Jerusalem. You recall that within, since Palm Sunday, as he rode in on Palm Sunday, within the scope of a week, now here we are on what we call then Good Friday. There is a reversal in the text that is purposeful for you to notice. The drama of the passage is altogether reversed. You remember, in fact, look back with me to Luke chapter 19 so that you can see exactly what I'm saying. Within the scope of one week, the entire scope of the passage and the idea of Holy Week has reversed itself from Palm Sunday to Good Friday. Here they are weeping for him. But you notice how Holy Week began. Jesus wept for them. Look at um, Luke 19, beginning in verse 41. 
And when he drew near and saw the city, right, so everyone's rejoicing. The multitudes are celebrating. He had that little uh, a scuffle in verse 39 and 40 of rebuking uh, the, 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 those in charge, the religious elite, the, the Pharisees. And so seeing this divided turmoil, then he looks over the city, verse 41, and when he drew near and saw the city, behold, Jerusalem. You see, he wept over it. This is how the story began. Jesus weeping over Jerusalem and saying, would that you, even you, Jerusalem, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you. Do you see? It's similar. What he just is saying yet again in 23. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear, down, tear you down to the ground. You and your children within you. You're going to be devastated. So devastated they will not leave one stone upon another in you. Because you did not grasp, understand, lay hold of the time of your visitation. Now, look at the way that the prophecy is building. Turn over to 21 chapter 21, just for a moment, because he repeats the same thing. So you take this idea that he is weeping over Jerusalem because of what is about to happen to them. And yet again, he reminds us in verse 20 of chapter 21. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, do you see? It's not going away. This is going to occur you're going to be devastated. So here he is on Palm Sunday, weeping over them. They're going to be destroyed. Everyone in this place will mourn for their children. Then he moves forward into 21, and in verse 20, says it again. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Because they didn't know the things that made for peace. Verse 21. He expands a little bit here in verse 21. And then that will make sense of what he says to the women who are mourning him. In 23, look at verse 21. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are inside the city depart. Let not those who are out in the country come in. Right? He's telling you the direct opposite of what would be instruction for a time of siege or a time of war. Get in the high tower. Get in the city center. There's a wall here that can keep them at bay. And he is saying, it is so absolute, the devastation that will be coming to Jerusalem. Even if you're in the fortified city, the best advice is get out. Devastation is coming to this land. Then he says, verse 22, for these are days of vengeance. 
Now, remember, you're, you're drawing your mind now to Luke 23. There are women who are faithful, who are lamenting, and they are mourning for him. And he says, don't mourn and weep for me. Weep for yourselves. Verse 22, for these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written, alas. For women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword. They will be led captive among all nations. What is to become of Jerusalem, the city center? It will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now you take this language of Palm Sunday and perhaps that Monday into Tuesday and you come full circle to chapter 23, verse 27. And there followed him a great multitude of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, daughters of Jerusalem. What will become of Jerusalem? It will be devastated. So he tethers these women to that location. Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming. Is this new information? Is this the first time we've heard this? This is my third time of speaking on this within one week. Do you understand you're going to be devastated for what you're doing to me. These days are surely coming when they will say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will all collectively begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover over us. You see, here he is uniting the causal relationship between Jerusalem of what they're doing to him and what they are to receive on the backside. It is a causal relationship. They are ushering in these days of vengeance. They are ushering in these days of wrath because of the action that they're taking against the Son of God. It isn't that he happened to die and then there's just a random happenstance in 70 AD of the siege laid to Jerusalem in the total decimation of the land. It is a causal relationship between their rejection of him and the coming judgment. So he says, do not weep for me, but weep and mourn for yourselves. And notice the escalated state of violence by another reversal in the passage. So at one point, he weeps for them, and now they weep for him. And yet notice another reversal, the barrenness. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore. You see, you know this very well from Old Testament reading all the way through to this point in the text. Even if you read chronologically, even if you read from Genesis, you open your Bible and you begin reading all of the dynamic narratives of the Old Testament all the way to now, you would see one consistent truth emerge regarding pregnancy and that bearing children is equated with a state of blessedness. 
It's even seen as receiving divine favor. So you have, you have the, 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 this, um, what, 4,000 years of, of divine favor, thought of in, in pregnancy of divine favor, um, the burden that was bore by those who were barren, and, and how when they were, were they were pregnant and giving birth, it was equated with a great state of blessedness. And now Jesus is saying the entire thought of that is reversed because of the crucifixion to those who are being held culpable in the immediate context. Due to the crucifixion, barrenness. What? That's impossible. Barrenness is never equated with blessedness. It will be in a time of vengeance. You see, don't weep for me, daughters of Jerusalem. Those belonging to Jerusalem, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves, for your culpability in what you're doing. The only people who will be so blessed are those who don't have to watch their children suffer. In other words, the way in which he's communicating, why would somebody say, Blessed are you, young woman. Blessed are you, married couple. Blessed are you, for, for you have never had a child. Blessed are you. See, our Lord says in verse 29, For behold, the days, these moments are coming, when they, the public, those around you, will say to you, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore. That can't be. Yes, it is. And blessed are the breasts that never nursed. That cannot be. Yes, it is. How so? How does that make sense? And it's because the siege that will behold or lay hold of Jerusalem will be so catastrophic. Such a humanitarian disaster that it will be better unto you to never have had children than to watch their brutal suffering at the hand of the Romans. That's impossible in this context to wrap your mind around. It is a deeply troubling and dark statement that he gives to the daughters of Jerusalem. A reversal of the entire state of blessedness due to the crucifixion. In fact, you see the story gets pushed just a little bit further. He draws on the language of Hosea 10.8 and the prophecy of where he quotes here from the word of the Lord, Hosea, again, 10.8 and verse 30. Then they will go further than that. This will be so devastating. And again, we're not making too much of it because he repeated it, these oracles, three times in the span of one week and the culpability that Jerusalem will bear due to the crucifixion. They're going to be utterly devastated. Verse 30, then even more so, they push, he, he pushes it beyond that and says, they will begin to say, collectively as a peoples, we are so oppressed, we are so driven. I just wish the mountains would fall upon me. Again, in other words, the entire populace will have a general death wish because of how bad the siege will be. The final word of doom. And again, now we're moving into verse 31. And this 
perhaps is the darkest of our Lord's sayings. Um, It's enmeshed in wrath and vengeance. And it tells us something about the persistent evil that's deeply embedded in the heart of humanity. Notice verse 31 in this final word of doom. He's arguing in a manner to say, like, think about it for a moment. Right? Because the contrast became earlier in verse 28 between him and the daughters of Jerusalem. Or... And they they represent the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So the contrast is squarely between him and Jerusalem. And so he's arguing yet again in verse 31 in the same contrast between him and Jerusalem. And the Romans playing a part in verse 28 through 30 of what the Romans are going to do to you and what the Romans are doing to me. This is the contrast. Here's you, daughters of Jerusalem. Don't weep for me. Weep for you. Because they who are doing this to me will do this to you. In the same contrast, he picks up yet again. Think about it like this, verse 31. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Me and you. And they, in other words, Jesus presses the maximum wickedness in the hearts of those overseeing his crucifixion. You see, they have to persist in their own evil in order to destroy a healthy tree. I don't know if you've ever just, by simple observance, tried to break a branch off that that is green, and it's like really annoying, very difficult to do, even if it's in your way, and you're spinning it like a thousand times and trying to get it to move, and it can't, and it's elastic, and it has a, a way to push back against you, and you're pulling on it, and finally you strip the bark, and it has like a mile worth of bark with it, because it was difficult, and you had to persist in destroying it, because it had some pushback, had flexibility, it had the limber necessity to stay alive, it was vibrant, it was full of nourishment, it was hard to get rid of, and you're saying, okay, weep for yourselves, do you understand what's going on in proportion here? If they will do this, those in charge will oversee an execution of a green tree, nourished, righteous, upstanding. They have to persist. You saw how they did in the courts. They brought it up on false charges. They didn't even find one witness to witness against me. Pilate himself dipped his hands in the water symbolically saying, look, you know, I'm I'm personally pro-life, but politically pro-choice. This idea, right? Look, I'm personally, I want out. But this way, this way, he's going forward. This, this, This calculation that he has, If they will do this to a green tree, all of the hoops they have to jump through, what will they do to you? What will they do to you who who are dead branches ready to be burned? Think of Jerusalem. 
in this first century context to give a little bit of clarity to the idea of what he means by a dead tree. In the first century context, Jerusalem is full of rebels, full of revolutionaries, those who are eager to create an uprising against the Romans. They are those who are eager for violence and mayhem. They're rabble-rousers, anti-Roman. He's saying, I've upheld the law. I'm without sin. And you see what they're doing to me. What do you think will happen when they turn to you? They will burn you to the ground. Notice the scene then at this point continues and persists towards the crucifixion. In, in, in a way to sew the two stories together um, is simply to, to lead 31 with a green tree being carried off with two others. Um, verse 32, Luke shifts to this, um, leading him towards the place of a skull. And now Jerusalem is left with this, with this enduring word that destruction is inevitably coming. And the only way to be prepared for it is to repent and believe. You're largely going to be caught up in it, historically speaking, unless you fulfill that, that word to him. He says, when they, when they lay siege, you run out of town and somehow are a refugee. The one way to get out of such a, a, a difficult, desolating moment is to repent and believe. Now, when I talk to you about the idea of multiple fulfillments, um, multiple reference, the first century, 70 AD, that's obviously long past, but that multiple reference of eschatological judgment is yet to be fulfilled. But as it was historically, as we now look back to 70 AD, it is no less real than what we now know did indeed go down in 70 AD when the Romans laid siege to Jerusalem. Yet somehow in our minds, we think of that secondary referent as somehow hard to wrap our mind around in a way that we neglect its truth. That it seems so far removed, it's almost in doubt as to if it will go down. At least that's how we make our decisions daily. And he's saying, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves. Destruction awaits all who remain in unbelief. To the crucifixion portion in verse 32, two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. Um... At this point, you look, and once again, Luke, adding characters into the story, which are significant. And we'll see, of course, you know, as, as Dan was saying earlier, it's very familiar. These texts are very familiar. So you know that the one has a conversation at the point of death with our Lord. But at this point introduced to us, Luke gives us absolutely no details. Very similar to Simon, very similar to the women who are mourning. And now he just kind of slides in there. There were two other criminals who were led away with him, and they were to be put to death also. So what they've actually done to be crucified by the hands of the Romans, it's unsure. 
but you see there is a distinction that is critical between our Lord and simply two other criminals. And you see what that distinction is on the lips of the one in verse 41. So you have kind of the smart mouth in 39 and 40. The, the rebuke that then comes back to him from his own kind of, uh, I don't know if they're random strangers, if they were partners in crime. Verse 41. He says, we're under the same sentence of condemnation, and, and here's the, the key piece, and we indeed, justly. And he ties it to the same, we are receiving the due reward. Like, like we're getting reward. We, we paid for this. We're getting what we ought. We're receiving the due reward of our own deeds. This man has done nothing wrong. Now, what are the deeds that they have done uh, is kind of neither here nor there. But if we are to put in who gets crucified in the first century by the Romans, it is those who were either a threat to the state, that is insurrectionists, which Jerusalem had a bunch of, and that's why they're going to be lit on fire by the Romans. That is, you're a dead tree laying dormant. They're going to burn you to the ground. There's tinder everywhere. These individuals were crucified as being a threat to the state or perhaps just simply dangerous and violent men, a capital punishment, perhaps murderers. But why don't we know more about them? Why aren't we told the details that remain? What brought them up on charges? What they did? What their background is? Because it's significant, but not significant enough. Just like Simon, just like the women, so also with the two criminals. They contribute to the portrait, but Christ is the center. Each contributing a contrasting role or serving our Lord in this hour. Simon carrying his cross the women who lament and mourn as the faithful, and the criminals who attest this man did nothing wrong. They serve this supporting cast of exalting our Lord in the hour of crucifixion. But in our last couple of moments, I want to draw your attention then to our Lord as the center of the narrative story. Again, whether it's Jerusalem, the women, Simon, the criminals, Jesus is in all things in this moment the center. Notice carefully then, as we gaze upon our Lord in the last couple of moments from his word, notice I'll pick up with verse 32 and read through verse 34. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. A, a, a brief note on the place of, called the skull, as, as you know, perhaps, or don't, that there, there's some question over exactly where the place of the skull was. That there is um, geographical rock in a certain location, perhaps you're aware of, that the rock facing looked like a skull, in particular light. And therefore, it lends credence to this idea that, that was this, this, this location by the topography, the place of the skull. And therefore, that was a place of execution, and, and there's some way to identify the area perhaps that way. The, the other idea is simply that it's a place where the, it was very public, 
and that is where they crucified multiple people, and it was for passers-by to not miss that if you so mess with the state, so goes your end. And so they guaranteed that it had maximum visibility, multiple people passing by, and thereby multiple skulls that lied on the ground. Either which way, we do know our Lord was carried off to a very particular place of execution in a very public manner, and there he was executed. And so I pick up with you again to draw our attention to him in his last couple of moments this morning, and so also ours. He, when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, the two who were carried off with him, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, think about that very carefully for a moment. Often we rush past and, and we get to what we're going to get next week. I, 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 I'm at least confident of that. We'll pick up here next week. How far we get, we'll, we'll see. But we will pick up here because it will deal with what he says. Father, forgive them. And we read it and we say, and Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. But do you see what he's doing? What is the actual act that he's performing? Before you say, for, for who is it for? And how is he praying? What is he asking? The fact of the matter is, in the moment of execution, he himself is praying. Do you see, Luke's been building that case throughout our Lord's ministry, that he is a man of prayer, and he is a man of belief. And in the absolute worst moments of life's circumstance, don't just skip over, Father, forgive them. Forgive them, forgive Father, the address of prayer. The very first words we have at the point of execution is a direct address of Jesus to the Father in prayer. It is so significant. Again, remember at this point, he is being tortured. He's now being hung to a cross, nailed in the dead heat to die a gruesome death. And in the moment, with a man on his left and a man on his right, as he is dying, cursed upon a tree, he is praying to God the Father. If you think about that just for a moment, how easily are you derailed by life circumstances? How quickly are you moved to stop praying? Is it so much as a feather in our pathway, a difficult hand of providence? And what do we do in response? How easily we are derailed how easily we begin to doubt God's benevolence and his goodwill towards us in life's circumstances. Think of it for a moment. Think of your Lord in his mind 
Think of this, please. In his mind, his horrible and humiliating condition in no way jeopardizes his relationship to God. How easily we are derailed. How easily we doubt his benevolence. In his mind, his horrible and humiliating condition in no way jeopardizes his relationship with God to whom he continues to pray, Father. One author comments this way, even in the midst of his passion, the moment of his crucifixion, he affirms the benevolence of God, not only for himself, but now also for those responsible for his crucifixion. Job, it has to remind you, Job 13, 5, uttered on the lips of Job, fulfilled in the life of our Lord. Job 13, 15, though he slay me, I will hope in him. Do you believe, do I believe that in life's most difficult circumstances that God is indeed a benevolent father and that he is loving us in a way that is greater than we can comprehend? Do you believe that? Taken up on a wooden crossbeam to be crucified our Lord indeed did embrace that. I conclude with you these thoughts. Quote, it is powerful to praise God in any season. But these are the most precious praises of all. When we cling to Christ in life's most horrible moments knowing that he has walked our path. He has felt our barb. He has received our nail. And that suffering, the foot of the cross, is precisely the place where we will know him best. Let's pray. Father, Father,